you shall see greater things than these. These words of Jesus from the Gospel according to St. John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You shall see greater things than these. That could be said about just about anything, wouldn't you say? I mean, greater than this beautiful church, greater than the incense, greater than all of you, greater than the person sitting next to you, you shall see greater things. Today we celebrate the feast of St. Michael and all angels. The joy of celebrating a feast like this is that it is rather subversive, a subversive way, or rather subversive to the way of the modern world, for we celebrate unseen realities, non-material entities, entities whose reality the scientific method cannot and does not want to confirm. You and I live in a world and culture that has been, as many observers have put it, disenchanted. Gone are the days when people believed that behind the veil of vision or consciousness, a world abounded with all manner of spirits. Our imaginations have been dulled. Our ways of knowing, halved by the disappearance of, in the West of what used to be a perfectly good way of knowing things, faith. The trouble with inhabiting a world of materialists or a world run by materialists is that we are at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to thinking, believing, and living as Christians. The Christian, after all, is one who must live by faith, who must look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. And I wonder if many of us have any clue how to do that. Many of the pressures which modern Christians face are directly tied to this major shift in cultural priorities. We see things like Christian fundamentalism, liberal Protestantism, deism, and last but not least, the prosperity gospel, are all tied in numerous ways to this crisis of disenchantment. If I no longer believe in a visible world, then I have to find Christian ways to explain the material world. If I no longer believe in an invisible world or invisible spirits or angels, then I must think, what would Christianity look like apart from faith? If I no longer believe God is active in creation, I must imagine what that looks like. If I no longer believe in spiritual blessings, then I must only believe in material blessings. And these are all tied in numerous ways to this crisis of disenchantment. There has been for many centuries an attempt to detach Christian believing from ways of living and believing that are distinctly modern, materialistic, and spiritless. Numerous theologians and thinkers have attempted to reimagine Christianity apart from faith, grounded merely in reason, and yet there are still those who, despite the best efforts of modernist conspirators, still do things like what we do today, celebrate angels. I don't know if you knew that, that's what we came together to do today, to celebrate angels. To many people today, we might as well be gathered around to hunt snipe, or toast the Easter Bunny, or write letters to jolly men who live at the North Pole. And yet here we are, not just today, but Sunday after Sunday, professing belief, indeed faith in things seen and unseen, 
things visible and invisible. To do so not only means that we believe such things exist, but that we put our faith and trust in their existence, that we stake our lives not only on their existence, but on their work. First, to believe in God at all is to believe in things visible and invisible, seen and unseen. And to believe that God alone is unseen or invisible would be a very strange thing indeed. Anyone can readily understand the concept of God, even if she does not believe, not merely because of a desire for some kind of consolation in a world that is full of pain and suffering, but because the heart has longings and is restless. And we find that no material pleasure can possibly offset that. We inhabit a world which is sick to death of material pleasure, doesn't even know how sick to death it is. At the bottom of that bottle of wine is not anything that can scratch that itch. At the bottom of the double bourbon, as much as I might love it, does not scratch that itch. In the dark reaches of the internet, that, that itch cannot be scratched. The Christian answer to this is rather simple. That you and I are made with a deep and abiding end which material pleasures cannot resolve. What the ancients called the final cause. That reality for which we are made and for which we long and that therefore defines us and draws us. To be made in the image of God is to be made to behold that image. To know it, to see it, to be satisfied with nothing else. The trouble is, we know that no matter how hard we try, we cannot attain to this end by our own power or sustained by, our, by that end or purpose alone or knowledge of it. There is constant and persistent failure. We face daily temptations and, and daily and persistent sins. We face daily disappointments. We despair of ever reaching that final end, of ever getting things right. Many people today live in fear that the rug will be pulled out from under them. I've had many people express to me in spiritual direction how much they feel like the end of goodness and happiness at all, even in the remotest sense, is about to come to them. And the Christian story is this, that in the darkness of sin, in the darkness of the human mind, in the darkness of human life, God became visible, clothed in human flesh, becoming one of us, joining things earthly and heavenly, things visible and invisible. From the moment the divine Logos became visible, a light shone in the darkness, and the darkness had not and has not overcome it. The incarnation, the taking of a full human nature by the divine Son of God, establishes for Christians that logic has a name, the name of Jesus. That truth has a name, the name of Jesus. And that the way to the end for which we were created has a name, the name of Jesus who has joined things earthly and heavenly who has joined in one person God and man and made them manifest. 
It should not surprise us, given this, that he was rejected, that he was mocked and crucified. This is the reality which we long for and yet which many people hate as much as they possibly can. As John writes, the true light was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home and his own people received him not. To be a people who believe in the incarnation but do not believe in a world of angels and demons, of spirits and unseen powers, is utterly absurd. I've known Christians through the years who say, angels don't really fit with my theology. And I will say, what theology is that? I don't really say that, but that's what I'm thinking on the inside. You know, sometimes I do say things like that, but I try not to. You shall see greater things than these, the Lord says. Greater things than what you can see. Greater things than Jesus saying, yeah, I saw you under the fig tree. Ha, ha, ha. Greater things than that. Angels ascending and descending upon the throne of God. You'll see what Jacob saw. And you'll see greater than that. Because our end as human beings, and I must remind you of it over and over and over again, is the blessed vision of God. There's nothing more. There's nothing less than that for us. And today we celebrate angels who, at the blessed vision of God, just cover their eyes. So close, so close to seeing what we hope for, what we hope to see. And what we have done, I fear, is ridicule those who believe in angelic hosts, or worse, ridicule the angels themselves. One can hardly be faulted for not believing in fat baby cherubs or precious moments guardian angels. I mean, we were driving through that stretch of Missouri where they advertised the precious moments thing somewhere in the middle of Missouri, and I asked Ella, do you think we should stop? And she said, oh, no, no way. Well done. <laughs> There's no sentimentality, no cuteness among the angels. What we must see is that simple faith in things like angels prepares the ground for greater things prepares the way to see what is more glorious until at last we attain to the blessed vision of God. We should teach our children to believe in angels over and above any mythic holiday figures because without a simple childlike faith in angels, they can hardly be expected to believe in much else. It's as G.K. Chesterton said about fairy tales, we should absolutely teach our children fairy tales because it's there that they come to understand that dragons can be defeated. I'm paraphrasing. And those are the last two things which I wish to say this morning, just in summation, that we must first believe in angels, that it is a duty of a Christian to believe in angels, not only because the scripture testifies to them, but because there is so much power there that to do so is not superstitious or wrong or cute or sentimental, and that second, we should trust in the ministry of angels. 
As to the first, in addition to what I've already said, I want to say something about the kind of angels in which we should believe. Several years ago, I commissioned a pen and ink drawing of the Archangel Michael for the St. Michael's Conference. It hangs in my office. From a really excellent Catholic artist and now architect, and when I saw the first draft, I remarked that the Michael he gave me looked first genderless and second too youthful. He looked like a 12-year-old boy, if anything. And he reminded me in an email that angels are neither male nor female, okay, and since they are eternal beings without age and eternally youthful. Well, touche. <laughs> and while all of that can be said, and we should say it, and you've seen images of angels like that today, we should also be reminded that angels are spirits, First, they're after the order of spirits, after the uh, nature of spirits, as Augustine teaches. And being spirits, they can present themselves to our sense as they choose or are bidden to in any number of ways. And this we see throughout scripture, angels appearing in various ways. As Peter Kreeft writes this, I love this, they are much better at pretending to be humans than we are at pretending to be angels. <laughs> in the ancient church, as scripture puts it, it was understood that the holy angels could be among us without our knowing it. Of course they could be. And the takeaway was that hospitality should be offered to all without partiality because some of you, as we read, have entertained angels unaware. Angels attend to our many needs, both extraordinary and ordinary. They fight unseen battles against unseen demons. They provide help in times of need or trouble. They attend to us in sickness and work to banish fears. But just as the angels attend to us, they attend to God himself, hiding their faces from his glory and proclaiming his holiness eternally. When this morning the celebrant will say, Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, he will really mean it. For this little church in the midst of Waco, Texas, is not in Waco, Texas anymore, but is taken up to be among the angels in their worship of God, to be with the church in her worship with those angels, that we might join our praises to the heavenly chorus throughout time and space. You might just imagine for a moment this morning what that might look like if you could tear open the veil for a moment and see. Part of me wonders if we could even see the altar due to the sheer number of angels crowding around it to worship the Lord in his sacrament. Now to the second part, that we should trust in the ministry of angels and indeed, we should see our fears subside. Yes, of course, I know what you're already thinking. Shouldn't we trust in God alone? And the answer to that is, of course we should. Absolutely we should. We should trust in God. We should trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, no doubt. But we should also trust in his creation, especially those parts which are bidden and kept doing his will constantly. We should trust in those parts of creation which it is his good pleasure to use for our good. To do otherwise is a bit like saying uh, to your spouse after they cook you a meal, I trust you, but I don't trust your cooking. 
Many Christians today struggle with a feeling, as I said before, that at any moment that rug of creation could just be pulled out from under them, that at any moment they will find themselves in grave and insurmountable danger. Should these trust God? Absolutely they should. They should trust in God for daily bread and for daily providence, but they should also trust that it is God's will to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. And part of doing his will in heaven is worked through the angels. They should trust in the ministry of God through a whole host of spirits who delight to do his will. According to St. Paul, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with a whole host of powers and principalities in this present darkness. And I have been at times one who has a great deal of anxiety about flesh and blood. I know you have too. We see a church today that is inflamed with anxiety about matters of flesh and blood. And I have to wonder if maybe that's because we've stopped believing in angels. <laughs> you and I fight a spiritual battle in a spiritual war, a war which will be won not by us, but by a spirit, by the Archangel Michael himself, who will cast a sword through the throat of the dragon and throw him down. That's what Revelation says, and I believe it. I want to encourage you this morning to call upon the Lord to send his angels to fight in the spiritual battle that you're engaged in. To send his angels to fight those battles and to, as Revelation tells it, win that war. Because it's raging all around us. Yet I must say this, our fear is unfounded. Because what's the first thing an angel says? when they meet someone, you know it. Do not fear. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.